Zion of Judah, and many, many other things. Isaiah 9 tells us that the Lord is the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace. And this Advent, today and for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking together at Jesus, the Prince of Peace. What that means, what kind of peace we're talking about, and what significance it holds for us. Frankly, it's a problematic title, the Prince of Peace. Because we are, of course, living in a world of shocking violence and hostility. Right now, multiple wars are being waged around the world. Um, we have terrorism on our minds. We have school shootings. Ferguson. According to one prominent study, the IAP tells us that only 11 of the world's 190 countries, over 190 countries, only 11 are not involved in a conflict of some sort. So how is it that we, with a straight face, can call Jesus the Prince of Peace? Many conclude that there's little evidence of His peace. What difference has He made then? What peace? Where is it? Many of you will know that this is the 100 year anniversary of the beginning of World War I. World War I is not a conflict that we talk very much about. Uh, in fact, it's a war that we really have kind of decided it's better to just forget all about it. And you'll remember that it was a brutal war, famous for its trench warfare and its mustard gas. And it solved really very little because just two decades later we have World War II and Hitler and Pearl Harbor and all the rest of that. But remarkably, when World War I began 100 years ago, it was called the war to end all wars. That sounds naive to us now, doesn't it? Silly almost. But when the war began, there really was an almost indescribable jubilation among the people on both sides of the conflict. So great was their optimism that this would in fact be the war to end all wars that they thought very little fighting would even have to be done to gain the peace. In August, as the war began, the Kaiser said to his soldiers, you will be home before the leaves fall. But they were not. The war lasted four long years. And of course, victory was not inevitable, and a peace that would end all war could not be achieved. The great 20th century historian John Stosinger put it this way, Few foresaw the world catastrophe that would snuff out the lives of an entire generation and consign the next generation to despair. And when it was all over, no one was who he had, who he had been. Sixteen million had died. You guys are going, wow, Colin, that's kind of grim. That's a 
pretty rough way to start out Christmas. Okay, fair enough. But if we were to truly celebrate the coming of King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, if we were to really make our Advent a holy season that rises above the commercialism and cuteness of our culture's holiday, then we need to be as honest as the Bible is about how devastated this world is and how bad things really can be. And then we look to Him to see that He has fought for us the war to end all wars. And we look to see the victory of victories that He has won for us and the ultimate and final peace that He has gained for us. Today in this first sermon in our Advent series, we're, we're taking our first look at the Prince of Peace. This is our introduction, so we have to go back to the beginning. If you would, open your Bible up. We're going to be in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 sets the template for everything that happens in the rest of Scripture and for the world that we now live in. So let's go there. Setting the scene for you. Creation has happened. Everything that God has made is good. Adam and Eve are sinless and in right relationship with God. And they've been commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to, the work, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the greatest tragedy in human history. As heinous as our world wars and all the atrocities of the 20th century and everything that preceded it is as devastating as all of those things are, this event is far more wide-ranging and its devastation is far more pervasive. It brought hostility and violence into the perfect world that God had created and His curses and death have come upon all of us. So going into this Advent time, we're going to hone in on the second half of that chapter and really look closely at the nature of the devastation that Adam and Eve brought upon themselves and us so that we can then point to the promise for deliverance provided by God and Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, help me, help us to do just that. Draw attention to the greatness of Jesus and our great need for Him. Guide Your Word like an arrow into our hearts. And may Your Holy Spirit move in us to do what it does so well, bring honor to Jesus. Enable us to see His might and His mercy. Amen. It could be said, I think fairly, that the whole Bible really is the story of one long war. The Great War. Try that on. What do you make of that? 
the initial assault, all the battles in between, the final battle and the glorious resolution and peace that was won. From this story in the Old Testament all the way through, through the life of Jesus, all the way to the book of Revelation, the Bible is telling us the story of a war that was done against God, violence done to His will and His work and His kingdom. In order for us to understand who the Prince of Peace is, we have to see that in Genesis 3, Satan wages war against God Himself, and Adam and Eve willingly choose the side of the evil one and join him in that fight against the Lord. This is not just a little mischief we're talking about, but a full-scale war. Scripture makes it clear throughout that Satan here is at work in the serpent. He is the adversary. He is the deceiver and moving in the background. Now this, this kind of talk about Satan, sometimes it makes us a little uncomfortable. We Presbyterians, um, we shy away from directly talking about Satan too much. We don't want to give him too much credit and with good reason. We prefer, I think, to talk about evil as a force out there or even the force within our hearts, the evil that's, that is surely there in our hearts. But all of that evil finds its origin here in Genesis 3. And we have to train our eye on it and recognize here is God's enemy. And He hates us and He hates God. So the enemy assaults God's creation violently here. And He turns God's creatures, Adam and Eve, to His side to be allies with Him against God. And He engages them in His assault encouraging them to openly defy their Creator. And horrific violence is done to everything that God had made that was pure and beautiful. Nuclear holocaust is what we're talking about. The perfect peace that God had made was shattered. Now, you guys are familiar, I'm sure, with the word shalom. This is going to be letter A in our first point. The damage is extensive. Shalom. Shalom is the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace. It's not a word we hear a lot around these parts. But it's the biblical word for what God had fashioned in the beginning. Our word peace is a lot more specific, maybe even narrow. Peace means a state in which there is no fighting a period of tranquility and serenity. That's nice, right? It basically means a ceasefire. The kids aren't screaming at each other. Things are quiet. But shalom, the biblical word for peace, it means more. It means completeness. It means wholeness. Fulfillment. You see the difference? Peace is good. But this is peace. Shalom, what God had done, is much more. So that's important for us to to carry with us over the next few weeks as we talk about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. Shalom. 
The devastation to Shalom is extensive. It affects everything. Nothing on earth has been left untouched by the sin of Adam and Eve. Every part of who they were was impacted by it. Their heart, their soul, their mind, their body. Everything that God had created was touched by this violence. It cut across all categories, shattering the shalom that God had intended. Like a beautiful vase or a giant window, it's not utterly destroyed, but it's shattered, and the cracks run all the way through it and every part of it. So let's paint the the before and after picture here of Adam and Eve and their relationship with God and each other before and after. Adam was fully present with God in Genesis 1 and 2. We say transparent. He was authentic. He was his true, real, best self. And there was nothing that separated him from the Lord. No fig leaves. Try to imagine yourself. Try to imagine yourself being able to stand before the Lord with no guilty conscience, with no past haunting you, with no fear of anything. Adam had no anxiety clouding his mind. There was no guilt that caused him to shade the truth. He could make eye contact with God. That's shalom. Their relationship was fully alive. It had joy, wholeness, wonder, delight. Adam only knew what was right and true. He had no secret sins or addictions to run off to. Try to imagine that. We can't really imagine it, can we? Not really. We can't really even imagine that because that's how radically different the world that we live in now is. There was shalom in the nature of things. Everything in the universe ran without a glitch. There was no catastrophe. There was no disaster. The world was without disease. And Adam's relationship with Eve also embodied shalom. They were completely at peace with each other. There was no manipulation. No hiding or passive-aggressive anything. No fear of rejection. They only had shalom. And within, Adam was whole within. He didn't know what you and I know, this war going on inside where we're second-guessing ourselves and we're self-conscious and we're We're constantly wondering whether we're worthy or not. He knew what his purpose in life was. He was whole. He had shalom. Now, I know I'm spending a lot of time here on this, and I apologize. I don't want to get bogged down in it, but I think it's important to lay some groundwork here as we go ahead into the next four weeks. We celebrate Christmas and as Christians, we talk about the, the, the Prince of Peace, and the world at large even talks about a lot of biblical-sounding things. Um, the brotherhood of man. Unity, right? Peace on earth. 
goodwill toward men. Even unbelievers say those things. And we often don't realize that what we're really talking about is shalom. It's echoes of Eden that are within every human heart still. Instead of shalom, though, Adam and Eve introduced strife into the world. We were made for shalom, but they waged war against God, and shalom was shattered. And they chose, instead of friendship with God, they chose the serpent. Keep your finger in Genesis. You can flip over to Romans 5. Romans 5 tells us that you and I are the spiritual descendants of Adam and Eve and are under the weight of the same curse. And we're destined to live out the same choice over and over and over again apart from Christ Jesus. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The devastation is great. Letter B. Our other hopes are false. So the curse continues. Go back to where you have your thumb stuck in Genesis. We're going to go back to Genesis 3 in a moment. In Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19, God begins to sentence the rebels, the ones that have betrayed Him. And we begin to see the nature of our present world take shape. Adam and Eve had placed their hope and trust in something other than God and His Word. And so they have now been thrown into a cycle of futility. And we see that here in these verses. Having tasted the shalom that God meant for us, humankind is destined to chase after it in the things of this life. Not in God, but in the things of this life. Grasping, striving to regain the fulfillment and the wholeness that we were meant for. Let's look at verse 16. Look at each of these curses specifically. Verse 16, To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The woman's curse involves these things, probably the things that are most naturally dear to her heart. Her childbearing is cursed, and her marriage relationship. Because of the fall, these good gifts have become part of the curse. And your joyous callings as women have been shot through with the ravages of this war that we're talking about. There's no shalom. Eve, womankind, will still set her hopes in these things, though. Even though there's no shalom, she will still seek her fulfillment in them. But they're false hopes. And they will not make her whole. 
if I can only have a child, then I will be someone. If I can only be a perfect mother, then I will be fulfilled and satisfied. And I'll have shalom, the wholeness that I'm lacking. The marriage relationship of Adam and Eve is no longer harmonious. Should I just go ahead and skip this point? (laughs) It's true. There's a struggle for power and domination. Who's in control? Who is going to serve who? And we most certainly set our hopes in it. After I marry this person, then I'll feel whole. If my husband or my wife would simply accept me for who I am, then I will know the love that I'm looking for, the shalom. Then I would be loved. Verse 17. Let's look at verse 17 together. Adam's curse is toil and death. And to Adam... God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Men, The strength and ingenuity that the Lord gave to Adam to pursue his work, his calling, whether whether it's farming or accounting or engineering or law, we will chase after it, looking to it to save us, looking to it for our fulfillment, our wholeness, and it will be frustrating toil and futile disappointment. Once I get this pay grade, once I am the boss, then fill in the blank. Now, don't misunderstand. God is good. Everything that He made is good. And that is so powerful, nothing that the devil or we have done could ever destroy it. There will be joys. There will be successes. The good things of God weren't completely destroyed, but they're cracked and they're warped. And we can't properly relate to them because of this. We're not capable of it. But the fulfillment and the wholeness that they provide will only be fleeting and they will only be glimpses of what we were made for. And the wound in the heart will not be healed by any of these things. But all hope is not lost. Our application here is simply this as we start to get into the good news here. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters, in the same way that Adam and Eve were, believing that God cannot fulfill and cannot satisfy and cannot make us whole. Don't fall into that lie. 
Now, I know things are bad. I've painted a pretty grim picture. It's been a bummer so far. At this point, God would have been well within His rights to curse us and to say, now I've cursed you, you got what you deserved, and I'll have nothing else to do with you. You're my sworn enemies. But, but, and I always say this, but is the most beautiful word in the Bible. It's a gospel word. Here's the bad news. But, the Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And He chose instead to love Adam and Eve while they were His sworn enemies. He chose instead friendship with them. And He chose to crush His enemy, Satan, and all of His works and secure redemption for mankind. Here, He planted a seed of peace. Let's look at verse 14 and see where amazingly the Gospel comes in. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Did you see that there? I know it's a little unclear. Did you see that promise? There's a seed of peace planted there. And God drives it so deep into the ground that not even the devil can touch it. And nothing can uproot it. He promises that one who is greater than all of the devastation that has been caused will come from the offspring of Eve. And within that acorn lies the oak of the Gospel. Greater promise. Almighty God, in His righteous anger, in the moment of crisis, He deals justly with Adam and Eve. But He says to the evil one something altogether different. He is saying, you have brought enmity and strife and violence into my beautiful world, but you will not be victorious. And you cannot have Adam and Eve. I will place strife between you and this man and woman. And someday one will come along and he will crush you. You will bruise his heel, but you can only bruise him. He will crush you and all the destruction that you have wrought. And Adam and Eve will still be mine. The seed that God promises, you know the answer. The offspring of Eve, the root of Jesse, is the Prince of Peace. In Genesis 3, before the Lord even puts His curses on Adam and Eve, He makes this promise. He promises the Prince of Peace will come to them. This promise precedes and supersedes everything else that comes after it. Before Adam and Eve were cast out, before Cain and Abel and Noah and the Ten Commandments and all of it, God has already made 
this promise that He will crush the head of the serpent and that Adam and Eve will be redeemed. And His promise is sure. Now this verse is called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium. That means the first announcement of the good news of the Gospel. And no doubt, way back then, it would have been anything but clear to Adam and Eve what exactly the Lord was saying. We look back now and we know the rest of the story and we see the oak within the acorn. But even then, the evil one must have known that his fate was sealed. And more importantly, the Lord God had spoken a word of friendship and given a promise. And that the fulfillment of that, nothing could ever prevent it. The devastation was great, very great, but the promised deliverer was much, much greater still. God promised there in the wake of the fall that the Prince of Peace would come from the offspring of Eve and deal the fatal blow. Now, we talked about earlier World War I. The outcome of war is very uncertain, and some of you can attest to that firsthand. Once it's begun, how it will turn out is anything but sure. But this is the one conflict whose outcome is already completely determined and settled. Can we look together at another passage? Isaiah 9. Many of you know it by heart. Verse 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Prince of Peace that's coming, how do we know this will happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The one who is commander of the legions of heaven has seen to it that our peace has been won and he is completely invested in ensuring that you and I might be saved. As we move into this Christmas season, we'll see that it's a time of great good and we'll also see that it's a time of great promises. Lots of promises are made by advertisers. They'll roll one out right after another. We make lots of promises to each other as family. We make promises to ourselves. We're not going to overspend. We're not going to overeat. And the expectations are high. But none of these things will fulfill us. They, in and of themselves, will disappoint us. But the Prince of Peace has appeared and He alone can satisfy our frustrated hearts. And He alone can bring the peace that we're looking for in the turmoil of our lives and this world. Our final point, and this is a brief one, letter B, 
The greater deliverance is comprehensive. Can I ask you to turn to one last passage near the end of your Bible? 1 John. First and second, third John, Jude, Revelation. First John three. John has a way of making things pretty simple and saying what he means. And he does it here. In chapter three, the second half of verse eight. He says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came not to just be a great teacher or a great leader or a great example to us. He came to destroy what was done in Genesis 3 and the one who did it and to utterly reverse the curse. Everything that was done by, the, by, the, by Satan was undone by the Prince of Peace. And everything that was broken by the sin of Adam and Eve will be restored by Him in the fullness of time. This is an idea that we're going to unpack in the weeks ahead. This piece is comprehensive. It's total. What Jesus is doing for us. The first Adam ate of the forbidden tree. The last Adam, Jesus, willingly chose the accursed tree on Calvary. For us, the first Adam passively waited while his wife was swept up by the evil one into destruction. The last Adam deliberately stepped forward to protect his people and do what they could not do for themselves. The first Adam was disobedient, bringing death. The last Adam was obedient unto death and instead won for us life. Amen? Our application. If you have your um, quotes and notes, you can pull that out. I'd like you to see this if you can. This is a good, really good thing to throw up on your refrigerator, to write it in your Bible, to pray it, to think about it. Uh, I think it's the second or third quote there. Learn. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled with a sense of the excellence of Christ. For every look at yourself and what you have done and what Adam and Eve have, have done and the devastation that the devil wrought, take ten looks at Jesus. In closing, on Christmas Day, 1914, German and British troops put up banners to wish each other season's greetings. They sang Silent Night in both languages at each other, and eventually they climbed out of their opposing trenches to play a Christmas Day football match, soccer in no man's land, and share German beer and English plum jam after Christmas. 
they went back to killing each other. Beautiful as this story is, this shows us the false hope of the peace that man promises. We can never restore peace to all that has been shattered. Only the Prince of Peace can do that. And He has. And He will. Let's pray.